You're listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum. This podcast is sponsored by Zoom to You, Australia's on-demand courier marketplace. Get your parcels delivered within hours rather than days. Today we have with us Michael Fox, founder of Fable Food Company. Michael previously co-founded Shoes of Prey, is also an ex-Googler and is also a mentor at Startmate. Thanks for joining us today, Michael, and welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Fantastic. So tell us briefly, what's Fable Food Company? What what do you guys do? Yeah, we produce delicious meat alternatives uh, made from shiitake mushrooms and a short list of all-natural plant-based ingredients. Sounds delicious. In fact, you guys can't see it, the the listeners, but um, Michael's background is actually one of his beautiful pies. What... What flavor is that one? Um, th- actually, this was a pie that uh, was made by a customer and posted on her blog. So it's like a, a it's a Vegemite Babel pie. Yeah, and, and shared, shared the recipe. It's, uh, I haven't cooked it up myself yet, but it, it looks very good as, as you guys can yeah, see. Yeah, it looks oh, delicious. It's sort of sliced open there and you're making me hungry already. Um, <laughs> Perfect. And so how did you get started and, and, and why did you sort of get into the, the vegan or sort of... Um, what, what, what do you call the industry, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, I guess the yeah. kind of meat, yeah. meat alternative space. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I've been vegetarian for coming up to five years now. So for me, kind of a mix of ethical, environmental and health reasons in that order. I uh, yeah, was doing Shoes of Prey when I went vegetarian. So it wasn't anything more than a per- personal thing. Um, but when I finished up with Shoes of Prey two and a half years ago, I took six months off. Just yeah, it was kind of the first proper break I guess I'd had in a decade. Just ended up reading about lots of different areas that... Uh, intellectually interested me and one of those was yeah the, the meat alternative space and industrial animal agriculture and yeah just got very passionate about wanting to help contribute to ending industrial animal agriculture for, for all the same reasons I'd gone vegetarian and yeah being a being vegetarian I kind of tried to convince a lot of the people around me to turn vegetarian and I think in five years I've convinced like two people and uh, I caught up with one of them the other day and he's not even vegetarian anymore so I'm obviously a pretty terrible uh, activist but but figured yeah like people love in talking to all those people like people love the taste and texture of meat and and a lot of people like understand the environmental and health and ethical issues around eating eating meat so they want to reduce their meat consumption but they still love the taste and texture so if you can deliver them the taste and texture of meat at a reasonable price and just make it from something other than animals that's the best way to help reduce humanity's reliance on industrial animal agriculture so tell us a bit about that i mean how how does it taste, if you can sort of describe it to our audience? I mean, I suppose we should all go out and buy it, and um, we'll talk a bit about that later on, where you, where you can buy it, because you've got some amazing partnerships there. But yeah, how does it taste, and how did you get it tasting so good so that you can convert meat eaters to eating plant-based food? Yeah, so um, one of my other co-founders, Jim Fuller, um, he grew up in Texas, so he kind of grew up eating all those slow-cooked meats like pulled pork and braised beef and beef brisket. Um, Jim uh, went and he worked as a fine dining chef for about uh, 12 years Then wanted to understand the science behind what he was cooking. So he studied um, uh, chemical engineering and agricultural science and ended up majoring in mycology, which is mushroom science. And then Jim's worked as a mycologist for the last 10 years. So really unique skill set of uh, chef and mushroom scientist in one person. So Jim kind of manages our product development team and, 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 and together with, with that team developed our first product, which replicates those slow cooked meats that Jim grew up on in Texas. So we use, um, so, so yeah, Jim's got the ideal background to, if you want to make a meat alternative out of mushrooms, a, a chef and mu- mushroom scientist com- 
combined into one human being is a, is a good place to start. And uh, yeah, so we went about like, how can we, how can we replicate those kind of meats? We explored sort of quite a few different mushrooms, shiitake mushrooms, uh, ended up being the way that we went. Shiitake mushrooms are a slightly slower growing mushroom, so they end up with a firmer texture. I and mean, then we basically take that shiitake mushroom, we shred it, so you get that kind of stringy, slow-cooked meat type texture. And then we have a couple of unique cook steps that we use, which change some of the protein structures uh, in the mushrooms, uh, make them taste less mushroomy and, and more meaty. And then, uh, yeah, the product, so the product's 62% shiitake mushroom. And then we have a short list of all natural plant-based ingredients in there as well. So we had some uh, some coconut oil, some soy protein, and then um, natural flavors like uh, like soy sauce, uh, salt, pepper, uh, yeast extract, and yeah, a few other sort of simple simple flavors to help help you help get that sort of meat uh, meat flavor in addition to the texture from the mushrooms. Sounds uh, really good. <laughs> I think we're I think we're both going to go out and uh, try some straight after this. <laughs> Perfect. There's two more customers. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> so stepping back a little bit, and I guess prior to starting Fable Foods, um, you co-founded Shoes of Prey, and I guess a brand that sort of many um, people in the startup community knew of. And you know, I guess that business ultimately closed down after ten, I'm sure, very uh, long long years and lots <laughs> and lots of uh, hard work. Uh, and I know you've written a, a fair bit about sort of your journey in there. I guess, you know, what were some of the things that you've learned from that business that sort of helped you sort of working out sort of what you're building with uh, Fable Foods? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I mean, lots of learnings over that 10-year journey, but probably the, the key one and kind of the key reason that Shoes of Prey didn't succeed in the way that we wanted it to um, was just was kind of around market research. So we, with Shoes of Prey, we kind of initially done really well in this niche of women who were passionate about designing their own shoes. And this was a very sort of creative woman and, and creative niche. We kind of grew the first two and a half years just out through our own cash flow, didn't raise any external capital. But about two and a half years in, we kind of realized we've got all these customers coming to our website, like about 10,000 visits a day and really low conversion rates. You know, we're selling probably 30 pairs of shoes a day at the time. And so we kind of delved into like, who are all these people coming to our website and why they're not buying? And what we realized was these were all mass market fashion customers. And when we talked to them and we ended up running focus groups and, and interviewing them, surveys and everything, they told us that, yeah, they love the idea of designing their own shoes, but there were three things preventing them buying. Firstly, they wanted a shorter lead time. For the first two and a half years, we're averaging kind of a five-week turnaround time on your custom-made shoes, and that's fine for that creative niche customer. She's willing to wait, but the mass-market fashion customer is often buying shoes for an event, so she wants her, she wants her shoes in kind of within two weeks. Secondly, the mass-market fashion customer didn't really want to pay a premium for designing her own shoes, and we were charging kind of a 30% premium on the same quality shoes, which the creative customer was happy to pay, but not that mass-market fashion customer. And then finally, the mass market customer wanted a really simplified shoe design experience, whereas the creative for the creative customer, what we built was a very kind of free form, almost starting with a blank template design experience. And that, that was overwhelming for the mass market customer. She kind of wanted, wanted something much more simple and guided. So we looked at those three things and we realized, yeah, well, we can deliver that. We can execute on those three things, but we're going to need to build our own shoe factory to bring the lead times down and the unit costs down because our existing suppliers that we're outsourcing to just didn't really want to scale scale this up and didn't really have the skill sets to do it. So we'd need to build our own shoe factory and develop the processes to bring the lead times and costs down. And then secondly, um, we needed to hire more user experience people and software engineers to simplify the shoe design experience. And so to do those two things, we, you know, we weren't going to be able to do that out of our own cash flow. We needed to raise capital to invest in those two things. So 
that we went out to the market over the next five years, raised five rounds of funding, $35 million in total. We, we executed on those, uh, on those, we built a shoe factory in China, scaled that up, uh, got the lead times down to 11 days, got the unit costs down. So we, we were char- not charging a premium for the shoes and, and the factory at sort of its peak was about 160 employees. We developed some really unique processes on making shoes one at a time. And then on the, on the shoe design experience side, yeah, we built out software engineering team, user experience team and changed, overhauled the whole shoe design experience over a number of years so that you kind of shop like you would on any normal shoe website uh, and then you could select any shoe and make modifications to it. So you love this pair of shoes, but you want it with a shorter heel height or in a different color, you make, make those changes. And then we did distribution deals with David Jones in Australia and Nordstrom in the US. So you could go into their stores on their women's shoe floor and design shoes on iPads in their stores. So kind of took the value proposition to where the mass market fashion customer shopped. And we grew, like we grew from uh, when we first raised capital, we were doing probably a 2 million Australian dollar kind of annual revenue run rate. And then by the time we uh, kind of five years in, when we executed on that value proposition, we were up at around a $12 million revenue run rate. So we've kind of grown 6x over that period, but we really needed to be, you know, we should have been, if our market research was right, we should have been in about a sort of 100 million revenue business if that mass market fashion customer was converting the way that our market research said she would. And we needed to be at sort of 25 to 30 million revenue to be breaking even because we now have these fixed costs of a factory and software engineering team. And yeah, we're only at 12 million revenue. So we were kind of a long way off uh, either of those figures. And so, yeah, we looked for all sorts of ways to pivot, ultimately couldn't, looked for ways to sell the business. Um, that, that ended up being complex for, for a range of reasons and yeah, ultimately ended up shutting the business down. So, yeah, my attempt to, long story to answer of that journey to answer your question, the thing that, reason, key reason that we failed in Choose a Prey was we got that initial market research wrong. What we realised after we built the value proposition is that that mass market fashion customer, consciously she thinks she wants to customise. If you ask her, she yeah, loves the idea of it. And that's why she's coming to our website. But deep down, subconsciously, she doesn't really have the confidence to design her own shoes and she really wants to be kind of guided. She, she actually wants to read fashion magazines and see what's popular in, in there and on Instagram and buy not only those designs, but even buy those brands that are, that are popular. And that's essentially the, the absolute antithesis of customization. And your subconscious mind is kind of more powerful in, in your decision making than your conscious mind. Uh, and so this this mass market fashion customer consciously thought she wanted to customize. That's what we built for her. But she deep down didn't want to customize, and that was actually actually what was driving her decision making behavior. So we built a value proposition that wasn't wanted uh, because we got that initial market research wrong. So applying that to Fable, uh, I guess yeah, my my big learning. One of the things that made made it hard for us with Shoes of Prey was no one had built. Uh, in, in that women's fashion space, no one had built a customization uh, kind of value proposition before. So we couldn't watch how consumers behaved. Um, we had to rely on that yeah, sort of surveys and talking to customers and, and, and asking them what they wanted. And I think in hindsight, we didn't do that well enough. We should have probed and like tried to really get down to the core of what was driving women to buy shoes. You know, we ran surveys and focus groups and the customers told us, yeah, we'd love to customize. You just got to do these things. And we heard that over and over. Um, it aligned with what we thought as well. It aligned with what Nordstrom and David Jones thought. So we, we, we figured that was the right path. But, but in hindsight, we got that wrong and should have probed further. The other option and what we're doing with Fable is um, operating in a space and doing market research where there are already other people in the category uh, who are doing things analogous to what we're doing. So 
you know, in the lead up to starting Fable, I spent a lot of time in supermarkets, you know, because there are meat alternatives in the supermarket um, and there have been for quite a few years. And just watching how consumers shop that category, like seeing what products they pick up off the shelf, what they put in their shopping basket, which ones they pick up off the shelf and don't put in their shopping basket. So seeing that behavior and then going and asking them questions about, oh, why, why didn't you purchase this product? Why did you purchase this one? And hearing their feedback. And that's a much easier kind of less, you know, you're watching consumer behavior as opposed to just asking them what they want. That's a much kind of safer way to do consumer research. So that's kind of how we've approached it with Fable. Yeah, right. Learnings. So that uh, would have been a quite a full-on 10 years there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's condensing it into about yep. sort of six or seven minutes. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there, was, it, there was a lot more to it, obviously. And it sounds exceptionally <laughs> impressive, I guess, what you'd been able to build in that time period. I guess just the, the economics and the, the financing probably just didn't, didn't, didn't work out. Yeah, and I mean, it, it would have it would have worked really well had the like like we executed on all the things we we did all of the all we delivered the value proposition that our market research uh, said the customer wanted. You know, it took yeah. time and it took yeah. money to do, of course, but we we ultimately delivered it. It's just that it wasn't what the customer wanted. So yeah, ha- had that not have been the case, had it have been what the customer wanted, it, it had the potential to be kind of amazing and revolutionary for the fashion industry. Just you know, manufacturing what people want on demand as yes. opposed to trying to forecast it in advance. You know, giving people exactly what they want. But yeah, the, the trouble is that that wasn't actually what they wanted. <laughs> and, and so, what, what was that like? And I guess sharing with with other founders, like what that process was when you when suddenly you realised that you you had to close out, close the business down. So how how painful and difficult was that process? Yeah, it was for us. It was kind of like a it's like ripping a band aid off slowly. Like it was probably kind of the, yeah the last sort of eighteen months of the business were kind of really tough, sort of gradually coming to these realizations as opposed to just like some big event that kind of kind of shut it off like we got to the end of it must have been 20 got to sort of december 2017 and you know we we clearly delivered the value proposition that the customer wanted it was out there in the market both online it was in we're in nordstrom stores people could design on ipads and you know we had revenue targets we're supposed to be on a that sort of 30, 40 million revenue run rate and we were on like a 12 million revenue run rate. And so it's like, oh, this is this is not working. So that, that was a pretty tough initial realisation. So then we spent most of sort of late 2017 and 2018 looking for ways to pivot. So, you know, we explored other niches that we could go into. So you know, odd, odd size, like small, large, wide and narrow sizing. We explored doing more kind of wedding shoes. But yeah, those niches had all sorts of challenges in them themselves. So we just couldn't couldn't make that work. So, you know, when we had the initial realisation that the model's not working, you know, the first step was like we, we pulled out of the Nordstrom stores because that was really expensive. So, you know, that involved letting a lot of, a lot of our kind of retail team go. Then we tried those pivots into those niches that didn't work. So we had to let kind of more of the head head office team go to sort of cut costs to try and extend our runway to give us time to find more paths that might work. Then, yeah, that didn't work. So we pivoted into kind of looking for a buyer for the business. Challenge there, we found was for our size and scale, we're a very complex business. Like we kind of had two businesses mashed into one and both quite complex businesses in the two halves. We had this manufacturing element in China where we owned and operated a shoe factory that did really unique things in making shoes one at a time. And then we had this Western fashion brand that also did some really unique things, allowing women to design their own shoes. 
And most businesses in the fashion space do one of those halves. You're either a Chinese company, and, and you know, like you, you, would, you would know this from your deals direct time too, like you're either a Chinese company who does manufacturing and is very good at manufacturing, or you're a Western brand who understands the consumer and marketing and how to sell products in, in Western markets. And so there was no buyer who could actually have the skill set to run both halves of the business. Yeah, yeah. So we looked, you know, is there a way to split the two halves of the business and sell each half? But then you had 100% supplier and customer risk. So if anyone bought the factory at that time, the only customer in the world for them was the Shoes of Prey Western fashion brand. So if that failed, your business is screwed and vice versa. If you buy the Western fashion Shoes of Prey brand, there's only one manufacturer in the world that can make your shoes. So you're kind of beholden to them. So, yeah, we couldn't even, I mean, we did end up finding a buyer for the business, but literally one buyer who could basically name their price and uh, unfortunately it wasn't much. So, so, yeah, it was just kind of kind of a 12-month period of going through all of that, just gradually letting people go and, yeah, literally like like ripping off a Band-Aid slowly times about 10,000. <laughs> Painful. This podcast is sponsored by Parkhound, Australia's parking marketplace. To find a convenient parking space near your home or office, and is there anything that you learned through that process that like through that sort of figuring out that you're having to sort of pivot into something differently that you would have done differently having if you had the time to repeat? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't I don't think so. Like I I still to this day don't see a path that we where we could have pivoted any kind of differently or got to a better result. I think it was that you know, in hindsight, we should have, we, we might have been slightly better off just shutting up shop initially and, and returning the money that we still had left uh, in the bank to investors. But I, I, if, if had we have done that, I'd be sitting here possibly, you know, regretting not having tried to pivot yeah. into wedding shoes or sizing because, you know, there were just there were things we had to spend a few months investigating and researching to learn more about that space and whether that was going to be possible. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think we could have done anything differently there. And who, no. who did you have around you sort of advising you and giving you advice during that, that time period? Yeah, um, so yeah, yeah Jody, co-founder in the business, um, our like sort of senior exec team were sort of there through all of that. So, so that, that group was obviously very helpful. We had our, our investors and our board. We had Co- Coastal Ventures, uh, one of our big US investors, were helpful through all of that process, particularly in sort of helping us identify what these issues were and how we might go about fixing them and kind of the need to cut costs to extend our runway to try and find a path out because yeah they've you know they're venture capital investors they, they do see this all the time so so they were helpful with sharing that experience yeah so th- those groups were all helpful i mean not people yeah people like nordstrom really helpful people who did lots of experience in the shoe space and that they'd invested in the business and they were sort of helpful in exploring different areas that we might be able to pivot into based on what, what they understood. They're the biggest shoe, women's shoe retailer in the US, a fashion shoe retailer in the US. So um, they had a lot of helpful insights. Yeah, so that, that was that was helpful having all those people around. But, but yeah, ultimately we couldn't find a, a better solution than shutting up shop, unfortunately. Yeah, right. Crazy, crazy. So switching completely differently uh, to a different tack now, um, in one of your Medium posts you speak about uh, your Aura Ring. Uh, are you still using it today? And uh, how, how useful is it? Are you still you still yeah, got it on? There you go. I love it. I've got it on right now. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, tra- yeah, tracking for, for people who don't know it, it's yeah, like a, a ring that you wear that's got a, a thermometer, heart rate mon- monitor, and accelerometer built into it. And then it kind of connects via Bluetooth to your phone. So you can 
track a whole bunch of metrics. It's particularly good for sleep and measuring your sleep, but it's also a pretty decent kind of activity tracker during the day. For me personally, for my sleep, it's been, it's helped me completely overhaul my sleep. I think for the last 15 years, I kind of struggled to sleep well, or at least I, I thought I was. Like I'd I kind of wake up in the middle of the night and you know be awake for an hour or two with the brain churning over and you know would often wake up tired. I think the Oohring kind of helped me measure measure my sleep. Actually, I, I ended up understanding that I was sleeping better than I thought I was, which actually then gave me a more positive association with, with sleep, which in turn helped me sleep better. So just, just that psychology of it helped. And then just being able to see things like if I have a light meal as opposed to a big meal before bed, like I can clearly see my heart rate and heart rate variability are better. I'm having deeper sleep earlier in the night and getting, and getting a more rested sort of night's sleep. I'm also not, you know, not drinking more than a glass of wine or something before bed or if, you know, trying to do it earlier in the, in the earlier in the day probably don't, don't do it at all but but yeah not drinking too close to bedtime or too much you know that has an impact too and then also seeing the impact of exercise on my sleep um you know there's all those sayings around what you measure is what you action um or some, some saying like that I'm, I'm i'm probably not saying that right but yeah it gives you that data to be able to track all of that and uh i've, I've got a lot out of it i'm sleeping better over the last 12 18 months since having it than i than i have for yeah, probably 15 or 20 years. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for sharing so openly about you know, your previous experience with Shoes of Prey. But let's let's talk now about your new business, yeah. Fable Foods. You know, Fable straddles a couple of megatrends, really, you know, healthy ready-made meals, which are becoming more and more prevalent, you know, in, in supermarkets and direct-to-consumer sort of brands out there. I guess Australia's been quite late to the party on that, but love to, love to get your views on that. And I guess, of course, plant-based or, or vegan meals. So tell us a bit about these sectors and you know where you see fable positioned in the market yeah yeah so yeah i guess that kind of the overall um plant-based trend so the, the the way i see that playing out over the next couple of decades is well, so basically meat industry is a two trillion us dollar industry um and it's two and a half percent of global gdp um so yeah, one of the world's biggest industries and people buy food taste and texture and price are the two big drivers for you know, buying any kind of food category. And so the theory behind the kind of alternative meat space is if we can, we being the, everyone in the category, can develop products that have a better taste and texture than meat from animals and produce it at a price cheaper than meat from animals, then we can convert that whole that whole category, that whole sort of $2 trillion industry over from meat from animals over to meat from plants and in our case, mushrooms. So... You know, we want to kind of beat meat on taste texture and price. So then it's a decision. It doesn't even have to involve the health, environmental or ethical benefits. Those are additional benefits on, on top. Um, sorry, you guys can right, We're all working from home. <laughs> <laughs> this is, pretty, this is the solid. real deal. <laughs> oh, okay. dear. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty, pretty solid. No, I hope that's all right. Um, okay. Yeah, so so yeah, that's kind of the theory behind the meat alternative space, and 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 you know it's analogous to what's happened in the electricity generation space. Like Australia hasn't built a coal power plant since two thousand and nine, and that's not for any you know it's almost almost the, the opposite. I think like the, the current government would build them even if it 
wants to build them even if they're not economically viable. Um, but the reason that they haven't been built is it's is solar and wind are getting cheaper than coal. It's just it's a poor economic investment. And so fast forward, you know, another I think Australia or, or maybe one state, maybe New South Wales, hit like. 44% of their electricity consumed uh, one day last week was 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 uh, sustainable energy as opposed to coal or gas. And, you know, fast forward another 10 years, most of our electricity is going to come from solar and wind sources simply because the economics is better. It's the same logic in the meat alternative space. Just make the product better and cheaper. And then even the most avid meat eater, you know, they're going to have to make an active decision that they, to eat meat from animals because it won't taste as good and it'll be more expensive. So that's kind of what's driving the category. And as well as like more and more people are coming to understand the, you know, the health, environmental and ethical issues around eating meat, you know, documentaries like Game Changers sort of pop popularizing a lot of the actual scientific and academic literature on the, the, the health benefits of a plant-based diet. Um, you know, a lot more data coming out on the, and, and documentaries like the recent David Attenborough one on the, uh, impact on, on the climate and on uh, on on nature of the amount of industrial animal agriculture that goes on in the world, and uh, yeah, then, then sort of you know the, the ethical issues around it as well. So so yeah, more consumers getting educated is helping the category. So yeah, it's a real kind of burgeoning trend. So yeah, our, our kind of first product is a sort of slow cooked meat. You can yeah, you buy it in the refrigerated section of Woolworths, and as of last week, Coles and like a two hundred and fifty gram pack of Essentially, it's kind of cooked braised beef. So you can take that and add it to you know, wherever you would normally use a sort of pieces of beef. So you might might add it to a bolognese sauce or to a curry, um, do it as like a beef brisket burger, a pie that we talked about in my in my background before. Um, you can use it in all the same ways as um, as as you would like a, a cooked beef brisket or, or braised beef or slow cooked meat from animals. And then as you touched on in your question, we've also launched some kind of pre-prepared ready meals. So those are available in, in Woolworths. A, yeah, chili con carne, a Rogan Josh, and a beef stroganoff, and they're like a single serve meal that you can you can pick up and then put in the microwave and and eat at home. Um, and they use the base our base product, uh, and then they've got their sort of kind of it's already cooked in a sauce with uh, with mashed potatoes or rice on the on the side, so it's kind of got the full meal for you ready to go. Amazing, it's a very smart concept, and I like the way you're taking an economic approach to something that you know you feel passionate about, obviously. The sustainability piece but you know it makes sense commercially sort of first um and that's always sort of entering the market very, very interesting so what percentage of aussies today would you say or maybe you know currently eat a plant-based diet or predominantly plant-based and globally you know where do we sit first like who, who are the leaders in this space and you know what are the trends yeah so we're one of the biggest meat eaters in the world australians eat on average about 110 kilograms of meat per person per year, excluding seafood. Um, seafood's on top of that. Um, and that's one of the highest rates in the world. Um, the US is pretty much on par with us uh, at that level. In Europe, uh, it's about 60 kilograms of meat per person per year. So they're getting kind of close to half of where we are in the US is. And then the average in Asia is about 20 kilograms per person per year. So sort of less than 20% of, of what we eat in Australia. In turn, so, so we're really big meat eaters. And, you know, just as an example on, of their kind of health consequences of that. One of our biggest killers uh, in Australia is bowel cancer. You literally, it's high, it's perfectly correlated to your consumption of fibre or, or your lack thereof. And you literally don't get bowel cancer if you eat a plant-based diet because you, you're getting enough fibre. Meat, meat doesn't have any fibre in it. Um, so if you're getting a lot of your calories from meat, you're generally not getting enough fibre. So yeah, if we switch to a plant, if everyone switched to plant-based diets, there'd be no bowel cancer in Australia. And, and it's, a, it's a huge killer of Australians and, and 
you know, lots of other examples around kind of heart disease and, and all sorts of other issues, um, health issues too. So we, we need to reduce our meat consumption, you know, even, even if we don't eliminate it, we, it would help significantly from a health perspective as well, as well as environmental and ethical uh, reasons to reduce our meat consumption as a country. And yeah, more and more Australians are becoming aware of that. So it's around today uh, about 11% of Australians are either vegan or vegetarian. And then another 30% of Australians uh, uh, say that they want to reduce their meat consumption. So they still eat meat, but are actively trying to reduce their meat consumption. So that's the segment that we're going after initially. You know, the vegans and vegetarians are already eating a plant-based diet. So, so that, that's not going to help our mission, getting them to buy fable. It's nice when they do, but that we don't need to convert them. They're already converted. It's that 30% who actively want to reduce their meat consumption. That's kind of the initial target market and then over time as our taste and texture improves and our price improves you know get the rest of the 89 percent of australians who uh and, and, and all of those who just yeah buy, buy meat based on taste texture and price alone and is is that your vision to ultimately switch traditional meat eaters to a plant-based diet and is that sort of how you really blow this thing up to become a really big business and i guess you know your vision must be beyond australia as well right yeah yeah totally yeah i mean the, the vision is to yeah, disrupt that two trillion US dollar, two and a half percent of global GDP uh, meat industry, and just give people meat. Don't don't change their behaviour in, in that way, but just make it from something other than animals. Yeah, awesome. And so you've launched in like less than twelve months, and you've already got you know distribution happening in sort of really large retail chains like Woolworths and Coles and and many others. Like, how did how did that all happen, and how did you manage to do that so quickly? And was that all because of your previous experience? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, entrepreneurship second time around is like far, far more uh, more efficient. Um, you know, made all the, or, or at least not all of the mistakes, but a lot of the mistakes the first time around. So you kind of yeah, just so many learnings that you that you get out of it. So that that's helped immensely. Yeah, I think operating in a space where there is this like this whole massive, massive kind of uh, tailwinds in the space and this big trend that we're we're um, kind of a part of. Um, you know, with shoes of prey. We're trying to convince people to design their own shoes, you know, that didn't exist. Whereas with with Fable, you know, there are already meat alternative companies in the market. We've differentiated by producing a different type of meat and, and making it from mushrooms and, and an all natural ingredient base. So, so you know, people will learn about the meat alternative space through Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods or, or other other good companies in the space, and um, they'll eat those products, and then they'll find our products, and our products are kind of complementary rather than directly competitive. So, you know having other players in the category has helped us. You know, the whole education piece is happening just through documentaries and the media. More and more people become aware of these issues and you know, like I mentioned, Game Changers and the, the recent David Attenborough film and, and you know, lots of other books and uh, podcasts, lots of other yeah, media kind of educating consumers so we don't have to do that. And then because it, it really is just, a, it is a trend driven by consumers. So Woolworths and Coles are seeing customers demanding plant-based meat alternatives. They're seeing sales growth in that, cat- in that category. So they're expanding the shelf space in that category and expanding the number of products uh, that they range. Like yeah, Coles did a big launch um, just last week and have now got sort of a dedicated bay for meat alternatives next to the meat section. Uh, Woolworths have had that now for about 12 months. And, and, and it's not just it's not just retail. So yeah, we, we sell through Marley Spoon. Um, they're a really big, big customer for us, the, the meal kits. Um, so we've been in there for coming up 
they were kind of our first big scale launch partner. So we've been um, available through Marley Spoon for nearly 12 months now. And yeah, a lot of consumers on there wanting to, you know, whether it's just having meat-free Monday, having like one meat-free meal a week that we can help cater to, or you know, they might be eating an almost a fully or almost fully plant-based diet. And then it's the same in the in the, in restaurants and restaurant chains. And yeah, obviously our rollout there has been slowed down with COVID um, and, the, and the challenges that the food service industries had this year with. Um, restaurants needing to, you know, only do takeaway, but we're, you know, we're still on the menu in about a, about 100 cafes and restaurants around Australia, and uh, we'll have about 300 more launching in Q1 next year. And yeah, that's sort of mostly with the Fable brand on the menu, so great way for consumers to discover the Fable brand and try the product for the first time. Yeah, so it's just a just. I think it's a combination of, yeah, it's a second-time entrepreneur, uh, apply all those lessons, uh, a category with big tailwinds, and, yeah, we've, we have developed a really good uh, product in the space. No one else is replicating slow-cooked meats, so we've got that uh, segment of the of the meat, of the alternative meat space to ourselves, and um, there's not really many other brands doing kind of whole food-based, all-natural meat alternatives, so uh, we get the consumers wanting uh, wanting that sort of product too. Yeah, cool. And like, but how do those like conversations start with, say, like a someone like a Woolworths? Is that where you've gone to their website, filled out a form, or you've known someone? Like, how how does that yeah, even start? Good, good question. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't I hadn't worked in food before, so that was new to me. And uh, uh, my co-founders, like, yeah, Jim was a, a chef and mushroom scientist, and uh, and so yeah, he knew the kind of mushroom industry well, but but not not the yeah not Coles or Woolies, and then. Chris McLaughlin, our third co-founder, um, he co-founded Australia's largest organic mushroom farm and was 2018 Australian Organic Farmer of the Year. Um, so he'd sold fresh mushrooms into Woolworths and Coles before, so had um, had some experience in that in, in that space. But yeah, really, it was just I mean, Australia's having. I started Shoes of Prey in Australia um, and spent six years doing Shoes of Prey in Australia, then moved to Los Angeles and did Shoes of Prey for four years in the US. One of the thing, one of the very good things about operating in Australia is it's a it's a big enough market that there's a lot going on, but it's small enough that if you've built a bit of a network in the business community, you're within one or two degrees of separation of pretty much anyone that you would want to meet. So when I wanted to chat to Woolies, you know, literally jump on LinkedIn or talk to some of my friends, and you know, someone's got a connection into a buyer at Woolies who. And kind of passes me over and introduces me to the meat alternative category buyer. You know, that was relatively easy to do. One of the things I struggled with actually in the US was the market was just, the, and the industry was so, the whole space was so big. And I hadn't, you know, I moved there with Shoes of Prey, so I didn't really have a network in the US. And I hadn't gone to college over there or um, any of those things where people do build their networks there. And so it was just, it was much harder to get connected in, for me to get connected in in the US. So yeah, I think that kind of just that yeah, business okay. network and the size of the Australian market's been helpful for that. For that, and and how quickly from like first meeting to product installed did, did that sort of take? Yeah, it uh, varies from customer to customer. So actually, Marley Spoon is an interesting example where uh, Rolf Weber, one of the co-founders, previously had an online retail fashion business. So I, I can see Mike nodding his head. So had, had had met him along the way with Brands Exclusive. Actually, it probably was a Brands Exclusive that. That uh, that Rolf did was probably a hybrid between Dills Direct and Shoes of Prey. It was like yeah, kind of fashion fashion sort of outlet. So I, I, I'd known Rolf for kind of ten years, just being in the online retail space and, and fashion space. And he finished up with Brands Exclusive and had co-founded Marley Spoon. So that was like an easy conversation to pick up the phone with him and have a chat. And you know, t- timing was fortunate there that the, his team were 
reviewing the meat alternative space, uh, like literally when I started talking to Rolf and he introduced me to the team. So that was probably three months from first conversation to, to launching. Uh, Woolies, Woolies definitely took longer. You know, they, they have range reviews twice a year. And then once you get accepted in a range review, it's still another three months before you're in store. But that said, I started talking to Woolworths like before we even had a product. I kind of got introduced to uh, Mauro Pisani, who's the, the category manager who looks after meat alternatives. Mauro's great. He had a lot of good thoughts on the category, where he thought it was going, what he was seeing consumers doing and shopping in Woolworths. So I had a few conversations with him and a couple of the other people at, um, at Woolworths, and that helped actually helped kind of guide the product that we ended up creating. And so then once we created it, you know, showed, showed the Woolworths team the product and yeah, they, they loved it. It, it, it fit a gap that they had in their, in their range and um, that needed filling. So it was yeah, kind of a no brainer to go, to go ahead with them. So that was probably from first conversation, which was before we even had a product to when we launched with them would have been, yeah, 15, 16 months. So yeah, okay. a longer, okay. longer process. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And would, have you considered selling direct to customers through like an e-commerce play? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, yeah. My pa- big part of my passion is uh, is e-commerce. Having done having done shoes of prey. When COVID first hit, we did some online pop-ups. It was, yeah, that was kind of a real thrill personally. So we ended up our, our initial launch strategy had been roll out in in Marley Spoon to do meal kits and roll out into restaurants and cafes because that's you know both of those are great channels for building brand awareness and driving product trial. Like if you. You know, it's a less risky thing to go into a um, restaurant or cafe and order the Fable Burger or the, the Fable Curry than it is to kind of buy a pack of something in, in the Woolworths supermarket and cook at home with it for the first time. So our strategy had been right to roll out in cafes and restaurants. And then when COVID hit, we, you know, that, that strategy had to go out the window and we had to pivot. Um, but we wanted to support the cafes and restaurants that we'd started working with. So we did an, a couple of online pop-ups where probably the, the, the yeah, up here on the Sunshine Coast where I live, we did a pop-up that was um, kind of a stay-home date night hamper. So for $99, you got a you got a pack of Fable, you got a choice of a Fable meal produced by one of the local restaurants that we're partnering with. Uh, you got some uh, plant-based cupcakes for dessert, some beer from a local brewery, and then a pottery kit from a local pottery studio so that for your date night, you could uh, kind of do pottery, do this pottery class at home. Um, and then we did, a, did another one similar thing in Sydney and Melbourne with a life drawing class that was held, that we kind of held over Zoom. So they were kind of fun, kind of creative ways to do some online sales. I think that the challenge in doing direct to consumer food sales is like our our product is refrigerated and uh, refrigerated logistics in Australia are expensive. You really need basket sizes of kind of $100, average basket sizes of $100 to make that work. And yeah, as of today, we've got three ready meals and a, and a base product, but it's going to be, would be a struggle for us with our existing product range to get basket sizes that high. So yeah, so we've kind of, we've done that channel for some pop-ups and, you know, it is something we want to do later, but it just doesn't quite make sense for us yet. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, and so you managed to uh, get Heston Blumethel on board. Like how did, how did that sort of uh, eventuate? Yeah. Yeah. We, we set us, so when we're developing the product, we set ourselves the goal of, you know, if we could get one of, get a really top chef using the product, you know, we'd know that, all right, we've developed a, that's a, that's a good tick and we've developed a good product and we're probably ready to launch. And so we were, we kind of reached out to a few different chefs and Chris and Jim had met at the top of our list was Heston Blumenthal and Chris and Jim had met him a few years earlier when he'd been exploring the mushroom space. So he'd kind of been introduced through mutual contacts in the mushroom industry and they'd, they'd spent a few days together visiting some 
Thai mushroom farms with uh, with Jim's who are showing testing around those farms and how mushrooms are grown and talking about some of the health and culinary benefits of mushrooms because Jim is also a, he's a chef and a mushroom scientist. So, so they had some really good conversations and then they caught up when Heston was in Melbourne a couple of years ago as well. So we had that in with it, like it, Chris and Jim knew Heston. So we showed him the product um, sort of middle of last year as we were developing it. He loved it. And yeah, he, he actually ended up being our first customer. So he, he sort of started using the product in his restaurants in the UK. And um, we did our launch event at dinner by Heston in Melbourne in December last year. And uh, yeah, he's been, a, he's been an awesome partner. We, we actually just, just signed a kind of six year deal to do some product development and marketing activities and things with him. The kind of first 12 months working together was just off, off, just off him liking the product and a, and a friendship, um, but we've sort of oh, good. Uh, sort of solidified that now. And yeah, he's been he and his team have been awesome to work with. Awesome, amazing. So, sort of twelve months since your official launch or thereabouts. You know, you're in six hundred Woolies supermarkets. Now you're in Coles. You're in Marley Spoon. You've got Heston on the team, so to speak. What's what's next for Fable? I mean, that's that's an amazing twelve month journey so far. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's been <clears throat> yeah, it's been been fun and been a whirlwind. And I think our kind of our revenue last month was about kind of we hit that point in about year six of Shoes of Prey, so it's been a yeah, and that's kind of month eleven for us at Fable. So Incredible. yeah, definitely been a much much faster kind of scale up and ramp up journey. I mean, we want to we want to continue that. So you know, coming up in Q1 next year, um, yeah, with food service opening back up in Australia, we've got sort of I think now a little over three hundred restaurants in the pipeline that will launch in Q1 next year. Uh, yeah, doing more in the meal kit space and ready meal space. We're rolling out into a lot of independent retailers over the last few months. So a lot of the really good kind of uh, natural and health food stores uh, and other places now have the base product uh, and some will end up ranging the ready meals as well. So I think we're in, I think as of today, we're in about 1,700 retail stores in total with, with one of those products. And then, yeah, we're developing some more mushroom-based meat alternatives. So kind of our, you know, we want to help shift the whole meat industry over to to plant-based food so slow cooked meats is you know a pretty small segment of the overall of overall meat market um so yeah going to replicate some other other types of meat with mushrooms and ultimately kind of you know we'd love to have a range that replicates all the different types of meat people like to eat uh and then yeah you touched on it before um we want to australia's a you know relatively small market for the mission that we want to achieve so we're starting to expand internationally too so just launched in Singapore, uh, launching in the UK. We'll probably focus for the next kind of 12 months on Australia, Singapore and the UK. Actually, we'll launch into New Zealand early next year too. And then uh, yeah, ramp up in those markets and then start to look to more broadly across Asia and, uh, and the US. Amazing. Really exciting. Yeah. Michael, thanks for sharing your journey with us today. And, you know, you've provided some terrific learnings and, and insights for our listeners so thank you very much and really look forward to watching your ongoing success and, and um, I'm going to try some of the um, Fable Food uh, Delectable Delights. So I've been looking at this uh, beautiful um, pie right behind you for the last 40 minutes, so I'm a little bit hungry now. <laughs> I'm definitely going to add the Vegemite to the mix. That's the yeah, secret sauce, yeah, is it? I was going to ask you what's the secret sauce. <laughs> apparently, apparently the Vegemite's the secret sauce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good idea. <laughs> no, thanks, thanks, Michael. Michael. Thanks, Steve. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate nah, you both. Thanks, Michael. It's been uh, great hearing. Thanks very much. Cheers. You've been listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum a podcast designed for founders by founders to help you scale your business. For show notes and to ask questions for future episodes, go to foundersonair.com. 
Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time.